Hello, hello, hello to all of our listeners. This is Octavia's Parables, co-hosted by myself, Adrian Marie Brown, and my incredible co-host, Toshi Regan. Every single time. I love you, Toshi. <laughs> we are recording Octavia E. Butler's classical text chapter by chapter with an eye for scholarship, trying to learn as much as we can about survival from the text. And right now we are in the midst of Mind of My Mind um, from the Patternist series, which is, I think, my favorite series. But I say that about each one. <laughs> so, um, and before we dive into chapter four, Toshi, do you have any news for the people? Yeah, I mean, the word rock sword festival. Um, oh, which yeah. is usually get we are gonna try to get to year ten again. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, and we'll probably do a short version of the festival, but we are gonna try to have the big concert at September seventeenth at La Poison Rouge and so a couple other things, and especially turning into this dive towards elections and things like that. So we wanna right, uplift the right. people, come together, have the conversations, you know do what we need to do. This is a really important time in the windy road. So we want to offer as, as much, uh, you know, nutrients, love, support, togetherness that we can. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, everything in the world is moving slowly. Like, so I'm like, I've got all these projects that are done, but <laughs> I'm just like waiting for the world to let me know when they'll come out. So yeah. I think I'll just say everybody, Think positive, flowing thoughts towards all those projects. <laughs> all right, so let's get into this. Tell us what happens in chapter four. Chapter four is such a great chapter. I probably say that all the time about our books, but it really is. And, you know, Mary has survived her transition in a beautiful and abundant, flowing way and has, you know, is off the charts, has done what, what no one has done. None of Amdoro's people have done. And so, as you all will remember, um, one of the ways that she survived was by connecting with other telepaths and, right. uh, and making a pattern. And she doesn't necessarily know how she did that, but once she did it, she wasn't able to release it. And so Carl is in that. And here we are in chapter four, we get to meet the other um team members of the pattern, I'll say. So first up is Seth and Clay. And it's actually Seth who's in the pattern with Mary, but Clay is pretty important part of this. And say Seth is um is an active and Clay is a very strange lady. Like Clay is 30 years old and has never transitioned. And if you have read any of these books, you know that that is very strange and weird and and Clay is living a very difficult life. Yeah. So we start off, we are near a town called Adamsville that only has 1,200 people. And this is Seth's solution to Clay being able to live an independent life because so far in Clay's life, he's so susceptible to other people's thoughts that he he actually can't survive by himself inside of cities and towns and he can't hold a job where he has to be responsible for things with other people. And so um, Seth's like, let's go away from people. Let's go right. someplace where there's, it's a very small town. Let's find a house. Let's, you know, so he buys this land. It's like in a desert, 
there's nobody near them. Like there's neighbors, but they're far away and they're not like trying to come and see you. And the house is old and, you know, kind of beat up and needs a lot of love and support, but there's water on the land and they're like, they can start something there. And what we do know is that clay, clay is pretty stubborn. So even though he has, <laughs> he has all these <laughs> issues, it's like every new day, every new idea is like, what, you know, like, why would, you know, like he can't, like he's his very brother's resistant like, to change. He's yes. very resistant to change. His brother's like, um, I don't know if you remember some of your other job situations, but <laughs> you need to be by yourself except for maybe one person. So these are two brothers that love each, each other tremendously. Um, Doro actually suggested to Seth that he kill his brother. And I should just say all of these people are Doro's people. Like you all know yes. this, right? So yes. they have relationships with Doro. Doro has already interfered with their lives and, and, you know, done things with them and made them do things they didn't want to do and stuff like that. So that's, that's a given. And when Doro finds out that Clay has not transitioned, he's like, you know, why, why don't you like help him go to his next life? And um, Doro is such a murderer. He's a, such a murderer. He just, it's not deep to him. So Seth declines. And this is a big deal because Seth, Doro lets Seth make the decision, which he does not do for everybody. So I'm not really sure why he did that, but yeah. Seth um Seth says I will take I will take really good care of him. And Clay for all of his resistance is easily talked into reason by his brother. So when he's like, you know, you have to live out here, you have to do this, you 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 don't really have any choices, then e eventually he's like, okay. And then when he's like trying to set up the life for him, he suggests, he suggests to Clay that he should not be alone, that he should get a woman. And Clay is yeah. like, a woman? <laughs> like, you, know, <laughs> you need a woman. Like, I just want to say that kind of you need a woman or a woman, women's line inside of these chapters with these humans are, are, are very patriarchy.com. It's just like misogyny on fleek. And so... This is the idea that, you know, eventually they will find a woman and, and this Seth says, well, you can find her yourself, you know, you can make your own decisions. But like with all of the telepaths is that, you know, they kind of nudge and help other people to make the decisions that they want to make. And so I think Seth at the end of the day doesn't think there's, it's going to be hard to find a woman willing <laughs> to go out into the middle of nowhere wow. and live in a shack with clay. So Seth is like, we, you know, we need some supplies and we need some food and I'm going to go into town and get us some stuff. And do you need anything? And clay is like, well, yeah, some beer, a couple of six packs. And then he's like, you didn't even have to say that. And so he's hopping up in the van that they have and he has a headache. It's not like usual. And the headache is like getting stronger and stronger. And then he has this experience. I will read from the book. Something slammed into his thoughts as though his mental shield didn't exist. It was an explosion of mental static that blotted out everything else, left him unable to do nothing other than endure it and endure the fierce residue of pain and shock that followed it. And by some miracle, he did not wreck his car. And so he is, he, he's like 
forget about going back into town and getting beers and stuff. He goes back to, to the shack. And this is Mary. This is the experience of when Mary starts to connect the pattern. So he was, he was on his way to get some beer and some food and some things. And then Mary said, no, come here. And he has this staticky sound, this vibration, and he gets back to like, you know, where he is. And, um, and Clay is like, what's going on? And he's like, we got to go. So they are heading to California. He's being called and he's like, we got to go. So that is Seth and Clay. Yeah. He's not going to leave Clay. But I have real questions about him taking Clay towards something like that. But Clay, Clay is not included in the pattern. So there's that. So next we have Rachel Davidson. And Rachel Davidson, I'm noticing in this section, you know, people have these other people in their lives that are kind of around them. And so Rachel has Eli. And Eli is like Rachel's like longest, you know, lasting friend, turn, partner (laughs) in work, turn, partner in bed, turn, you know, everything. This, This is like basically Rachel's only person. And they have teamed up and they are basically traveling healers in the uh, Christian sense. They go to the churches, they do sermons, and then there's a big healing situation. And Rachel's very, very popular for her healing. And she's not feeling so great. And they have they have a gig at a local church and she's not feeling hot. So Eli goes to the church first and she's just trying to get herself together. And there is a real oh. like... Uh, insecurity slash competition thing between them. It's very clear that Rachel is the more most powerful person, but she, even though she doesn't feel well, she can't quite stand the idea of Eli being in the church and like leading things. And the other thing is that she has this yes. hunger, this, that, that, you know, the telepaths have, they need to feed on other people's, you know, minds, brains, situations, the whole nine. So she's sitting there feeling weak and feeling confused and not feeling good and feeling envious and Eli's at the church and might mess up their whole thing. So she gets it together. She, she doesn't even comb her hair. She just kind of brushes it back. She jumps into a cab and this is, these are some black folks and there's a black folk town. And the cab driver is black and is like, are you going to see that healer? And she's like, yep, I'm going to get a healing. <laughs> and she gets into the church. And where is it that Octavia cracked me up? I just want to say she gets to the church and you hear this. The congregation was singing when she walked into the auditorium, watery, pallid, <laughs> uninspired singing. They were making uncoordinated <laughs> They were making uncoordinated noises with their throats. People, the read. You know, Octavia heard that somewhere (laughs) and was so offended and put it in this book. Note to remit. Literally, the worst thing you can say about anybody trying to sing is (laughs) uncoordinated noises with their throats. Oh my goodness. And it, it was, it was awful. So. Yeah. I love um, it. Also as a marker, that's like, something's not right in this church. <laughs> like, this is black people making leave. uncoordinated noises from their throats. Something's not right that here. Something's not right here. There's already a problem. So 
this is a, a really also a great section I'll read that kind of describes, you know, what Rachel needs and how she functions. The power, the energy she used in a healing service had to come from somewhere. Eli had called her a parasite, a second Doro. He had talked her into foregoing her usual price. She had, and he puts price in quotes, she had tried and that was why she was sick now. That was why the taxi driver who was black too and who knew the church and the address asked her sympathetically whether she was going to see the traveling faith healer. So she has been trying to like not feed. She did not like being called a parasite by Eli and she and that actually made her think about trying to do it, but she's she can't. She got sick and now she needs to go and get what she needs. Unlike the congregation, she can sing. And uh, she gets this big intro from um, from Eli's sister, Davis, and praise the Lord, she's here. And people are very happy to see her and, you know, are just getting into it. Eli, however, is, is not happy. He gives her a long, bitter look. She knew from the expression on his face as he looked at him, she could see that what he saw she could see it through his eyes, the hungry, drawn look that so many mistook for religious fervor. And so she told Eli he had to introduce <laughs> her and Eli didn't want to. And then she basically threatens him with, you know, basically running him and making him do it against his will. So he gets on with it. She has the congregation. She's like capturing them with everything. And she does all of this stuff. But at the end of the service, or near the end, that's when she actually does real healing. And before, before she can get, get too far down the road, there is Mary. And Mary does the same thing that she has now done to Seth. Um, she's standing up and she is doing her healing. She is healing a woman in a wheelchair. And then she just gets hit with it. And did I say that she really heals like people come yes. in and something is yes. wrong and she actually fixes it. So this woman in the wheelchair, even though she was being hit with Mary's pattern, the woman in a wheelchair gets up and starts slowly walking out the room and pushes herself. She's made people here who were deaf. She's, she could grow an arm back. She just doesn't do it. Like she, she knows that would be too much, but she has done miracles for people and they're very, very real. So obviously coming maybe from the Emma chain of healers and with Doro. So she, she's getting hit. She's getting hit. She says somehow when the dim inside her head lessened, she finished with the woman in the wheelchair, sent her away slowly, pushing her own chair and crying. Then, without explanation, Rachel handed the service back to Eli and walked away. And she was like, we got to go. And we're going. So she, too, is heading to California and heading to Mary. And then we have, in Pennsylvania, this asshole, <laughs> Jesse Bernard. And this is um this is someone who is using his gifts in just Yo, the smallest, Jesse. just Ugh. the smallest, <laughs> most nastiest way. Like you got gifts, bro, and he's he just is like he has a town, he has this whole town, yeah, and he's like a, 
I, I don't even want to say high school student. He's just young in his his being as a person yeah. in the universe and young in small thinking and abusive. Yeah. And he's just nasty. He could be anything else, but he's this nasty bully. So he's like basically on a date. He's been with this woman, Tara, and he wants to like go and have a date. And it's like, what are we going to do? And she was like, let's get lunch and go to the park. And he's like, let's go, you know, someplace else and eat in this cafe. And she doesn't want to go with him there. And she just is like, no, like, let's go to the park. And he's like, no, let's go there. And so what he does is he goes to these places. He never pays for anything. Everybody's terrified of them. He, you know, can manipulate in people's minds and get them to do anything anyway. And, you know, the person who doesn't have that power is whatever woman is with him. And so this person gets to witness and be reflected on all the negativity that he's causing because people can't stand up to him for fear of him doing what he can do. Then next, he wants to go to this lake. And so she does not want to go to the lake with him. Like she is like, no, I don't want to go. (laughs) And he's like, we're going. So she drove to the lake. And as she has driven into Donaldson, Jesse has wrecked three cars and nearly killed himself before he gave up driving. There was just no future in it for someone who might at any time be hit by mental disturbances from other drivers, pedestrians, whatever. It wasn't as bad as it had been during his transition, but it still happened. Doro said his mental shielding was defective. Jesse didn't worry about it. The advantages of his sensitivity outweighed the disadvantages, and Tara was a good driver. All his girls were. So this is, this. you all are getting it right. Jesse is not yeah. a nice person. Yeah. And what basically happens, it's, you know, wonderfully written. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Yeah. But Jesse, <laughs> there's a cup, there's another couple, and they're enjoying their time at the lake. And Jesse is like, I want to swim in a lake. You want to swim in a lake. Go get their bathing suit and swimming trunks. And she's like, what? Like, you know, basically the girl that's um, in the couple knows she's a town person, but the guy is not. He's like from outside of town. So he doesn't know what's going on. He's just like, are you kidding me? Like who comes and asks you for your swimming trunks and your bathing suit? And so he is like, I'm not. No, you can't have that. And the girl is mad at Tara because you can't be mad at Jesse. So Tara just is like, my life sucks. I I need to get away from this man. And so the guy is like, I'm not doing this. And um, eventually Jesse shows up and looks at the guy. And the guy's name is Tom. And Tom is like, I'm not here for this. And you're not going to come in here and take our bathing suits and stuff. And Jesse is like, are you crazy? And then he's like about to get that. And Tom's girl, she jumps in between and is like, Tom, it's okay let him have it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to let him have it. Like, and everything comes to a halt because right at that moment, Mary, Mary reaches out and Jesse is like not available to be the asshole he usually is. And she reaches out. And as soon as she reaches out and Jesse looks a little bit like distracted, Tom proceeds to just beat the crap out of him. And he's just not he's knocked out he's like he gets beat up pretty bad but um jesse is more concerned about what happened to him like what 
took him out of his own self. Where is he? What is going on? He's very confused by it, but at the same time, he starts to recover. You notice that everybody else was like, immediately, I have to go. Jesse beats the guy up. Right, because he says that like the violence of it all blocks out the, the intensity of the call. Yeah. Yeah. So he beats the guy up, and then he's like, I got to go. So he is also headed to California. It's interesting when Mary talks about what she did, she's like, kind of like, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how to release it. It's just there. But to so far to all the people who are receiving it, it's like something is pulling them. Like they don't even have a, it's not like they can just sit and be comfortable and experience it. It is like that the thing is pulling them. So, so he, he heads out and then we have Ada, how are you saying this? Dragon? I was going to say dragon, but I don't know. <laughs> she did spell it with dragon. the A. D-R-A-G-A-N. I'm going to call her Ada Dragon. She is a person. I don't know. A lot of these people have a very strong personality and a very focused direction. And Ada is is someone who is like, I have this. And I don't want this. And, you know, it just causes me a lot of problems. She doesn't have a forward moving with it. She's not into like Jesse taking over a territory. Yeah. You know, she's not like Carl. Where Carl is like, I can build a life of wealth using this gift in a way that's not too big. Da, 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 da. She is ha- in a, a very complex relationship with um, her partner, Kenneth. And Kenneth is just feels like a very small person, an abuser, somebody who is probably the absolute wrong person for her to be with, especially considering what's happening. And someone who doesn't honestly have the gift and seems to be envious and therefore more abusive. So he gets angry when she does any kind of interference. And when we open her section, she has kept her neighbor from beating their six-year-old child. And Kenneth is like, you know, you shouldn't be interfering in other people's lives. She's like, it's a child and she needs to do that and I can I can help. And so she had this power and all the power did most of the time was cut her off from other people and make it impossible for her ever to be one of them. Her power was more like a disease than a gift, like a mental illness. And she had gone to one doctor secretly and Basically, she realized she couldn't because they were about to lock her up. You know, she said things to Kenneth that she had not thought herself capable of saying anymore. He did not realize the degradation and despair this signified in her. He, This is her husband, but he's awful. And, you know, she needs a friend, but he's awful. She married him and she's kind of like, you know, gently kept him with her. But he is, he's a terrible person. And he also, he also beat her. So he slapped her, done terrible things to her. Just as they have this whole fight and he's hit her, Mary's pattern arrives. And she's hurt from the fight with Kenneth. But she's also like everybody else, you know, seeing that, that there is a a force bigger than anything that's happening to her. So this is a little bit about her change. Since her change, that terrible night three years before, when all the world had come flooding into her mind, she had treated her condition as a temporary thing, 
something that would by the day end and let her be as she had been. There was a belief that Doro had tried to talk her out of, but she had been able to convince herself that he was lying. He had refused to introduce her to others who were like her, though he claimed there were others. He had said that it would be painful to her to meet them, that her kind tolerated each other badly. But she had looked for herself, had sifted through thousands of minds without finding even one like her. Thus, she had decided Dora was lying. She had believed what she wanted to believe. She was good at that. It kept her alive. She had decided that Doro had told only part of the truth, that there had been others like her. It was unthinkable that she had been the only person to undergo this change and that the others had recovered and changed back. So this is this is like what her state of being has been until Mary. <laughs> and when Mary shows up, that she is like everybody else and she has to go. Yeah, and it's for her, it's like a way out. Like she's like, I've got, I can, I have to get out of this current circumstance. Yeah. yeah. Her circumstance is not survivable and she, Mary might be a refuge, honestly. So she's like, I'm going, I'm leaving this man and moving on. And she doesn't have a choice anyway. So it's, it's good that it lined up. The next, and the last person we're going to meet in this chapter is Jan Sholto. I'm going with Sholto. S-H-O-L-T-O. This is a person going back home. Jan is returning to the neighborhood. She hasn't been there in a while. And so she's noticing the change. She seems to be yeah. racist. <laughs> she seems to be like yeah. when she she notices like you know some brown children running around she's like well that's different why are they here <laughs> like she just seems to be a little bit you know a little bit soft not, racism okay. so <laughs> yes <laughs> yes uh-huh. she she had placed her own children in a comfortable home where they would be well cared for have um, better lives than she had Uh, There was nothing more that she could do for them, nothing she could accomplish by visiting them. Yet, for days, she had felt a need to make a visit, a need, an urge, a premonition. Thinking about it made her uncomfortable. She deliberately turned her attention to the street around her instead. The newness of it disgusted her. The unimaginative modern houses, the saplings, trees, even the complexion of the neighborhood had, had been changing. Jan could never have lived there. So as she's thinking these thoughts, um, a little girl, no more than seven, was standing in one of the yards watching Jan walk toward her. Jan examined the child curiously, small, fine-boned, and fair-haired like Jan. Her eyes were blue and not that pale, faded blue of Jan's eyes. The girl's eyes had the same deep, startling blue that had been one of her father's best features or one of the best features of the body her father had been wearing. So y'all know who her father is. Jan turned to walk down the pathway to the child's house and as she came even with the girl, some sentimentality about the eyes made her stop and hold out her hand. Will you walk walk to the house with me, Margaret? So Jan automatically blocked any mental contact with her 
She had learned painfully that children not only had no depth, but that their unstable little animal minds could deliver <laughs> one emotional outburst after another. These are Jan's thoughts. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> not Octavia's. Nah, these are the character's thoughts. Okay. <laughs> and Margaret spoke as Jan opened the door and Jan wants to know if she's coming to take her away. And then the child calls mommy. And so this is a, a new thing. Jan just really raises an eyebrow at that, at the irony of her daughter's words. And the woman, Lee Wesley, this is the woman that has been raising um, Jan's child, you know, walks in and does not have another child by Jan, Vaughn, a little boy. And Jan resisted the temptation to reach into her thoughts and learn what was wrong. And this is all really interesting. So Jan Jan just has some boundaries around like dipping into people's thoughts. And so Leah says, I thought you might be coming. I was even afraid you might take Margaret. She says, I don't know what happened, Leah, tell me. And she said, there's an accident and, and Vaughn is dead. So there's a, a lot of detail around what happened. But basically, this is so huge. This is very, very huge to Jan because... Vaughn is Doro's son, and yeah. and uh, and Jan is now uh, terrified because she doesn't know how Doro will react to one of the kids being killed, even if it was an accident. She basically is like, I don't care that he's dead, Leah. The words came out in a whisper, even though Jan had intended to speak normally. Jan, Leah was on her feet at once, probably not understanding, probably... I'm realizing only that Jane was again conscious. And so in the middle of this conversation, Mary has sent her bolt. So yeah, Jan finds out like her son is dead and then Mary taps her. And then she comes out of that and is like, okay, this, you know, this is bigger than anything. And it doesn't matter that this child is dead. And that, you know, for all of us is like, that's, we don't think like that. So she is like, be good to Margaret for me. I might not come to see her again. And she is off to California and she's not sure who's calling her. Right. And she's petrified because, you know, does Doro somehow know that this child is, is dead? Is Doro calling her? Like she doesn't understand anything, um, but she couldn't help herself. She had to go to Forsyth. And if Doro was there, she would be going to her death. And those are the actives in the pattern. This is going to be fun. Ooh, Lordy. <laughs> something. Lordy. They Lordy. all come in with all kinds of issues and situations. Yeah. Well, and so much just surviving wretched conditions, right? Like Doro has really, you know, in a way it's like we're seeing people that are from Doro's pattern get snatched into Mary's pattern and Doro's pattern has patterns upon patterns upon patterns within it. So I will explore that in a little bit, but um, I have to tell our listeners, I got my booster shot and I'm having like a very sniffly good time over here. <laughs> so um, just <laughs> that I'm okay. Um, that's what's going on, but I do. You look amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I was yeah. like, my nose is like a bright, Rudolph the reindeer, but I have questions. The first question I have, as I was listening, I was thinking about like 
the kind of patterns we end up in, the kind of communities or formations or structures we end up in and what pulls us into those. So I want to ask our listeners, are you or have you ever been in a pattern you didn't choose? Have you felt mm. yourself pulled in, manipulated in, convinced in, invited into a, a space that you're like, I didn't choose. I don't want to be here, but this is the pattern I'm in now. and I've got to figure it out. Like, mm-hmm. do you connect with this? And I kept thinking about people who undergo certain kinds of trauma or attack that that creates these patterns that we're all moving through. And sometimes, you know, you're talking to other people who are in a pattern with you. Sometimes you don't. But I want to ask our folks, like, really sit back and think about this. Continue bringing it home into your own life. Mm. And then in several of these actives, we see, and the people who are, like, supporting or in relationship with them, we see this resistance to change or aversion to change. And I felt such compassion for that because so many of them are dealing with severe mental, what feels like severe mental illness, you know, something that they can't take to doctors. They don't understand how to process in a, in a society. So I'd love to ask y'all, what do you see as the overlap between the struggles to survive and the stability you, you might be able to figure out with the resistance to change, right? Because we know that the through line of Octavia's work is that God has changed. Change is constant. Change is always happening and we want to be able to shape it. But then here mm-hmm. we see people who are like, change is not good for my mental health. Change is not good for how I figured out how to survive. What do you notice about that in your own life and in your own communities? And then reading about these characters, you know, you see how Doro has harmed each of them and gathered each of them. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this a lot in light of all of the mass shootings, mass violence that's going on and the way people respond to it, the way those who could intervene seem to respond with so little empathy, so little care, uh, so little ease with death. And I wanted to ask y'all to think about who is the Doro in our world, right? As you're watching this, as you're getting more familiar with his technologies and his thinking, who is out there manipulating vulnerable people to potentially harm others? Who doesn't honor life? Right? Like Doro is this character that Octavia wrote to personify a way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Where do you see Doro, Doro's way of being showing up in modern society, showing up in crisis after crisis? Do you yeah. see Doro close to you? it's such a great question because it's almost i when you started forming a question i was thinking you know doro could be dead but the pattern exists and when we were like um talking about transformative justice we can easily be like really thinking about us being new You know, because <laughs> the pattern, the other pattern is so big and yeah. that that also that denial piece, you know, like most people are like, no, well, this isn't actually happening or that dizzying trying to find solutions to something that is, you know, she just I didn't read all the descriptions of how people were feeling yeah. when they were getting the bolt because it, you, we would be here for a long time. And I really hope you all <laughs> read this book. But 
it, they describe it as a lot of them describe it as like a, a headache that they can't get rid of or a buzzing yeah. sound that's yeah. happening all the time. And, um, and that they, you know, part of the reason they have to go is because they can't get rid of that. You know, exactly. They, like they're like, yeah, they, this pain is, you know, the discomfort, the dis-ease is so persistent and perpetual. Like this is a call that I have to answer. And I think that for a lot of people, what we see right now is like a certain level of depression and isolation and disconnection can become that level of pressure. But I also mm-hmm. think recently I keep noticing like when stuff happens, people are like, oh, it's, it's, it's whiteness, it's men, it's this, it's that. And like mm-hmm. trying to earmark like this belongs to, in the Doro language, this, this behavior belongs to a certain skin. And Doro shows that like this ideology of death cult behavior and manipulation mm-hmm. and like not caring for life can jump from skin to skin. Like if this is how power is defined and it cannot yeah. be pushed back against, it can move from skin to skin. And I think that's to me why it's so important to look at things and be like, oh, it's, you know, these active shooters are not just targeting one kind of people because that death cult behavior is in so many people now that at yeah. any point, anyone could become the the victims of that energy. And right. even if the person holding the gun looks different, the ideology inside of it is the same. It's that death it's has same. taken over, right? So I want people to really pay attention to that because when we try to say Doro belongs to a certain skin and will always stay in it, that that behavior, that ideology we, we stay divided and we stay powerless against it, right? Because we're like, oh, only these people, only these people, only those of us who need mm-hmm. abortions, only those of us in women's bodies, only those of us, you know, I'm like, no, yep. there's a need for a unifying presence right now across all the constructs that we've been given in order to actually move against something that feels overarching and overpowerful and like that we could never overcome it. And so just keep tracking that in this story. And then a few more questions. What do you make of the racial dynamics of the pattern as it's getting unveiled? You know, um, who mm-hmm. who is more likely to be in the pattern? Who does Doro feel more likely pulling into it? And then mm-hmm. I love this question about the healer. What is the responsibility of miracle workers? Mm-hmm. And what is their possibility, right? If you have the capacity to heal others, to actually do miraculous work, are you responsible for doing that? Are you responsible for offering that? Like, what is the weight on you if you let someone be in your presence and you know you could heal them and you don't do it? Mm-hmm. Right? And is there a way to do that that's symbiotic or is it always transactional? I feel like there's a point that Octavia is making about healers here that feels important, which is like healing is something that feeds <laughs> the healer as well. But what is that responsibility? And then I keep seeing these patterns amongst the pattern. So I want to ask two questions that are about this. And then I want you to reflect as listeners, what are the patterns you see emerging in the pattern? So one is the isolation of power. Is power always isolating? In each of these characters, we see that as they develop their power, they end up so isolated. They cannot belong to community. They can't belong Mm -hmm. to anything. They're a world apart. And So far in the book, are you seeing ways that power could be something that brought people together or is it consistently isolating and same in your life? Have you seen people accumulate power 
without ending up isolated from community and isolated from humanity and belonging. Mm. And then last question for me, have you seen the pattern of living with mental illness or mental difference and finding yourself perpetually in abusive dynamics, right? So several of these characters are in relationships that like just look like textbook abusive relationships and they're not leaving because the mental illness state makes it like, what else could I do? Who else could I turn to? Where else could I go? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like the condition of not having people who could recognize it here. And like, I see that I have seen this so many times in my own life where people stay in abusive situations because the alternative is the state. The alternative is hospitalization. The alternative might be imprisonment because people are not understood. Mm -hmm. So what people, as you're listening, pay attention to these patterns within the pattern, right? Octavia is laying out for us a kind of people Mm -hmm. that we need to be paying a lot more attention to both for their potential power and for the way society discards them and what gets fomented in Mm -hmm. that discarded state. Yeah. All right. So that is our show today. That is chapter four. I'm going to be contemplating these questions, Adrian. Yeah. I really, (laughs) I was like, Ooh, Octavia gave us a lot to work with this time. So Mm -hmm. we love you guys. Our producer is Kat Aaron. Our show artist from Krista Franklin. We are transcribed by Jess Pico. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at O Parables. You can find us on Patreon um, at patreon.com slash O Parables. And transcripts for all episodes are live at readingoctavia.com. Music for Octavia's Parables is You Don't Know the Time, written and performed by Toshi Regan, and the Sower Song, written by Bernice Johnson Regan, performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower in Memorial Hall in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. A sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed. 